When I think of Portland, Oregon, I think of coffee houses, bicycling everywhere, bookstores, historic bridges, beautiful parks. You get the idea. Well, those are all awesome things about Portland, but there's also a really cool university there, the University of Portland. Their School of Nursing has a Doctor of Nursing practice program. One of their alumni, Dr. Maya Strom, now has her very own holistic practice right there in Portland, where she says she's able to practice slow, gentle medicine, which allows her to make her patients feel supported and a true member of their own healthcare team. I mean, we all want our healthcare provider to treat us like that, right? Dr. Strom says the DMP program at UP taught her not to settle in her career, but to find her own authentic voice and practice with integrity, intellect, and curiosity. This sounds like a wonderful program to me. So if you're thinking about going back to school and becoming a nurse practitioner, go to nursing.up.edu to learn more about their doctorate program. Everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and I have Allison back with me. Hello, Allison. Hey, everybody. <laughs> uh, Allison is, of course, a nurse manager where I work and longtime friend and guest host of the podcast as she comes on here every now and then and helps us out guest hosting. And we've got some good stories to talk about today, don't we? Yes, we do. <laughs> And we're not sure how we feel about them. So this is a different kind of I know guest spot for me. We've always been very clear on our I know. determinations. It is different, especially, especially that, well, the bad nurse story is just one of those things. It's kind of like, it is a complicated story, kind of controversial, sort of still going on. And so it's, but lots of details. And I think there's enough information out there that our listeners can listen to all the information and make their own determination. I don't think it's one of those stories where people are going to be unsatisfied as to the outcome, because I think you, I feel like you can listen to it and have an opinion one way or, or another about it after you've heard everything. So we'll see. To start off with though, I, I want to talk about this because it's so fascinating. This this idea. Now, the story for our news story, what happened is really sad. It's not the way this should have been, you know, intended. We're going to talk about maggot therapy later on. But this, what happened here is this woman was at this nursing home and she had a wound uh, on her foot. And at some point, a nurse came in to do the wound care, looked and saw maggots in the wound, pointed it out to the patient's family member. The family member, of course, lost her mind. Like that's, that's just horrifying to, to, to think of for most people because I, it's hard for me to think of anything more disgusting than maggots. I mean, it's pretty bad. And to think of them being on you or on your loved one in a wound that's open and just it's just disgusting and it's so hard to imagine. So I can imagine the uh, the shock and the horror. Um, and if I was that family member, I'd be, I would be thinking, if this is going on, what else? What else do we not know about? Right, that's always kind of the first thing you think of. The granddaughter who initially was told about it is she's a nurse practitioner. That's interesting because one of the things that we were talking about is the fact that there is a wound care therapy known as maggot therapy that is done 
And I mean, I've personally seen patients come into the hospital with maggots in a wound before. And the patients are and the family are always just absolutely horrified, just like can't believe it. But it's not, it's after you've experienced it a few times, you realize it's not, it's not as shocking as you might think. Because if you have flies, it's the middle of the summer, people keep their, their windows open or their doors open or whatever. And they're, they're just flies, you know, they're flies. They get in the house. It's not that unheard of to have flies in your house. And then if they're going to be attracted, I mean, this is so gross, but they're going to be attracted to that rotting flesh or rotting, I mean, it's so gross to say, but that's kind of what it is. So you can imagine flies being attracted to that, laying eggs, the eggs hatching, you know, becoming larvae hatching, you know, into maggots. And, and then they're just kind of like, living in that wound. Well, the maggot therapy, what it does is they actually, those are introduced into a wound and it very naturally cleanses, debrides, and cleans up a wound. And it's been, I was, you and I were looking it up before we started this. There's actually evidence that shows that it works really effectively. And it's it's not a. It's not exactly a bad thing to do if it's if it if it's so disgusting to think about. Yeah, it does kind of gross you out when you think about it, but you can see why it because you know they like to eat the dead dead things, right? And so if in wounds you have dead skin cells or mm-hmm. you have dead everything in there, tissue, and so it's it's kind of similar to have you seen where they'll use like fish skin. Um, for people with burns, no. Tell me about this. Yeah, so that's <laughs> what is um, this? <laughs> so that's another kind of I've I haven't seen it, um, but you know, on the trauma floor, we do get patients with burns, and so it's something that I've read about. But they have taken like they've wrapped people that have burns, severe burns, and they'll like wrap their arms in fish skin. Wow! And then you know, like put gauze on it, you know as the barrier and it kind of does similar things to what the maggots do but you know fish skin they're really oily they're they're wet they're you know it keeps moisture in there on those I don't know the science behind all of it but I know that there there's crazy therapies yeah out there for you know um so I could see how this is very beneficial however I <laughs> Being the family member, I would like for a physician to come and tell me, okay, well, your grandma has a really bad wound. So we're thinking about using this alternative treatment by putting maggots in there to clean it out. And I think I would be like, okay, I, mm-hmm. I see that. Versus walking in and a, a, a CNA pull me to the side and being like, hey, by the way, they found maggots in grandma's wound today. It's a different... Yeah, it's not, this was not therapy. This was not intentional. This was the way that it, it was described in this article in the the Buffalo News was the, buffalonews.com is where I found this article. And the way they described it is basically a doctor came in to look at the wound and assess it, took the dressing off, looked at the wound, debrided it, did whatever they were going to do with it, and then left and didn't put, didn't redress it, and didn't make sure that it it was redressed by someone. It just was left open, and you know it's it's a. And these facilities, 
a lot of many times they're understaffed. They're, I, I can imagine the nurse, the LPN, who, whoever was doing the nursing care, already doing their wound care that morning or dressing, redressing their, you know, doing their dressing changes. And then the doctor coming in and taking that dressing off. <laughs> How many times has that happened? If I had a penny for every time it happened, I'd be a millionaire. It seems to happen a lot. I've even waited until the end of the shift to do a dressing change. And lo and behold. <laughs> Here they come at shift change. <laughs> they'll come and you're just like, you are kidding me. I've been waiting all day for you to come. And then I finally decide to do it. And here you go. Yeah. They undress it. And I just, you know, you just go back and redress it. I mean, none of, we're not going to leave that open and exposed, obviously. Right. But, it happens on our floor because um, <laughs> night shift usually does the first post-op dressing change, which is like 48 hours after surgery. And so we've kind of made that a, a night shift task. And so it never fails. They'll do the dressing change. And then here come the ortho PAs rounding at like 6, 7 a.m., <laughs> And they take oh. it all off. <laughs> yeah. And they don't put it back on. And no, they, they just they assume. Don't. And and this doctor at this at this facility that, uh, from this article said that they didn't have time to put it back on. Maybe they didn't. I mean, doctors ha- are, have a very demanding job as well. They do. They have a some many times they have too many patients on them as well. It's it's no different than nurses and every other healthcare professional. We generally don't have enough workers. And so they're probably going from one patient to another also. But that doesn't, that's no excuse for leaving a patient's wound open and exposed like that. There, something has to be done. You have to make sure that you talk to the nurse and say, look, I have got to go, but I, can you go come and redress this right now? Because I, I had to take it off in order to do the debriding or, you know, whatever, the wound care. That did not happen. It stayed exposed. And there were some things that they found when they investigated, when the health department investigated, like there were flies throughout the facility in different rooms, dining, the dining room, the main kitchen, all over. There were doors left out, uh, left open, you know, kind of left ajar. Um, screens weren't installed um so they were just or weren't installed correctly so there were gaps and so the it allowed for flies and bugs to get in and so it just set up a situation for this poor woman and her family to have to to go through this and it's just really unfortunate because i know that had to be it was i mean sure it was just devastating the thought of your 89 year old grandmother sitting there being ne- neglected and that's how it would feel because you're thinking I left her here because I wasn't able to take care of her and I thought that you were going to and now I come and find this it's just shocking yeah and it said that the first it was an LPN from a staffing agency that initially found them yeah she found them and um for the uh, report sheets that she told the registered nurse and she had tried multiple times to tell the nursing supervisor, but she wasn't able to get in touch with the nursing supervisor. Um, per her you know, report, she called them, um, paged them, texted them. And so it was four days later when the family actually found out. And so they mm-hmm. were upset. They couldn't get answers from the administrator. Um, I think it said maybe the DON was off 
she was not there. And so they talked to the administrator. She wouldn't answer any of their questions. And they ended up, they terminated the H, the LPN, the agency nurse that initially found it. And the article said that they were kind of using her as the scapegoat, saying that she didn't follow procedure. The nursing supervisor for the day said that her phone wasn't working, but that she had told all the nursing stations to call or text her or page her. But per this, the one that actually found the maggots, she did all those things and couldn't get a hold of anybody. Tried multiple, multiple times. Yeah. So they're probably just, they're looking for somebody to blame this on. And it also said that they had been cited before. I can't remember yeah. exactly for what, but they had had visits and citations before. So this wasn't their first time being kind of looked at for their practices. Well, that's hopefully with this happening and getting this much attention, maybe they will be forced to change that and uh, do a better job of of making sure that flies aren't, you know, just flying around everywhere and that dressings get put back on and these things are taken care of because it's not like the dressing was just left off for a few hours and then someone realized it and oh, and then, you know, cleaned it and went ahead and redressed it. That's not, like you said, it took days. That's completely, it's unacceptable. It's just unacceptable. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. It gave us an opportunity to talk about maggot therapy because I remember how shocked, shocked I was. Absolutely shocked when somebody came in with a leg wound that had maggots on it. And I was like, what are you talking Mm -hmm. about? And then that's when everyone started telling me, no, this is something that's done. It's not, you know, it's it's more common than you think Mm -hmm. people get maggots in their wounds. It's not, it's because there's flies everywhere. And I'm like, no, I, my brain didn't want to believe it. I was just like, that's not, no, that can't be true. Mm-hmm. But it is, it is true. And it, and they're actually clean. They are helping. They, many times they will help keep a person from losing their extremity because they're getting rid of all that old tissue, getting rid of the bacteria, mm-hmm. and cleaning it up. It's, Have you ever heard of leech? therapy. Oh yeah. I feel like I've heard of yes, that that's another before thing. too. So, and that would yeah. freak me out, but. Uh-huh. Anything like that. I'm just like, no, this is 2020. Surely we've got better alternatives. I'm not saying I would not do it if it was, you know, if that was what they said was the best thing, but oh my goodness, I'm not sure I could, mentally could handle it. I mean, it's maggots are one of those things that bother me. I mean, I'm just appalled. <laughs> I can't, yeah. I can't. I can't deal. So our bad nurse story this week, we already talked, we hinted a little bit about it. It is just a complicated story. Uh, Very controversial. Lots of twists and turns, twists and turns, but we'll see if we can keep it all straight. Not exactly an easy story to keep straight. It's, It's got so many, I think the problem with it is it has so many variations of the story and what happened, you know, as many of these stories do. It's like, you have this person's version of the story and then you have this person's version of the story and then the person who really knows what happens is not with us anymore. So you kind of have to put the pieces together. So this is the story of Kimberly Long. She was a licensed vocational nurse and worked in an emergency room. She was an emergency room nurse. And 
she and uh, her boyfriend, Ozzy, is uh, what he went by. His, his name is Oswald Condy, but he went by Ozzy. And he lived with her in her home. So that's sort of the situation that we had. They each had children by different previous relationships. And um, so the children would kind of sometimes be with their respective, you know, parent, other parents, and then sometimes would be there. On this particular night, the children children were not in the home when this happened. So on October the 5th in 2003, this was a little back in the day, and ironically, or incidentally, this is still going on. It's This happened in 2003, and this case is kind of still pending in a way. So it's pretty complicated. So Kim and Ozzy had a friend named Jeffrey, Jeffrey Dills. They spent the day together. They were riding motorcycles and drinking, which great combination. I mean, bad judgment right there, right off the start. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't end up on my floor. Yeah, yeah, not it. Motorcycles in general, um, and I know this is probably a controversial statement. I'll probably upset someone, but I just think they're a bad idea. They're just... I've just seen too many people with head injuries, you know, their bone flap removed and completely unresponsive and family sitting at the bedside, really upset. And it's like, oh gosh, you know, it's motorcycles. There's just nothing protecting you. Just, you have no protect. Well, I mean, that helmet, it's just, it doesn't do a whole lot of good. So here they are, Kim, Ozzy, and Jeffrey. (laughs) The Three Stooges out <laughs> riding their motorcycle. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't sound yes, like that. Yes, <laughs> they're out riding their motorcycles and drinking heavily. Drinking, I think this, one of the stories said, and they're kind of bar hopping. They're like they'll go to this bar and hang out for a while. And this is day during the day. This is an all day thing event for them that they're just hanging out, riding around, going from bar to bar. We call that day drinking. Day drinking, yes, and. While at one of these bars, Kim gets upset because Ozzy starts accusing her of flirting with other men. And so she gets upset and and starts arguing with him. Well, they they all end up back at, at her house, at their house. Jeffrey, Ozzy, and Kim. And they're kind of out in the, in the yard. And they're arguing. Well, not Jeffrey, but he's just sort of like a third wheel standing there. Um they're arguing and Kim gets really pretty violent. I mean, she's yelling, she's pushing Ozzy. She starts telling him that he's a loser because he doesn't have a job. He's not paying his fair share. And she told him that she wanted him out of the house. So she hit him. She hit him with her hand. She used her purse. She... Uh, used her motorcycle helmet. That sounds painful to me. She. It sounded like she threw anything she had. It said something like, "Yeah, a, a hat. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. anything she could find. She was just chucking it at him. Yeah, she was furious. She was throwing a temper tantrum is what it sounds like because he was being a little protective, I guess, or jealous. And maybe the alcohol had something to play there as well. But... Jeffrey says that, and this is kind of like his take on what happened. Okay. 
he has his version of the of events and then Kim has her version of events and there's some other versions of events that come along later. But what Jeffrey says happened is he got concerned that Ozzy was going to hit her back because she was just so crazy and just hitting him with all this stuff. So he stepped in between them. So Kim, I guess after she had had enough, left with Jeffrey and went back to his house with him. Went back to Jeffrey's house. So um, apparently they kind of did more drinking there. He had a hot tub. They got into the hot tub and apparently had some sort of sexual encounter, um, whatever. (laughs) And so Jeffrey says that at some point, she just immediately, like very abruptly just, just said, I've got to go home. I have to go home. Like as if she just all of a sudden had this the thought that she needed to leave and she just left. And this is his version of, of course, of the story. So he said that while she's getting dressed, she's still really mad at him because she's still talking about how angry she is at him and how he better not be there when she gets home. She could kick his butt and all this stuff. So Jeffrey takes her home. She begs him to take her home. He didn't want to take her home, but he agreed to go ahead and take her home. He says that he dropped her off at her house around 1.20, but somewhere between 1.20 and 1.30 in the morning because he said when he got back home, he set his alarm. And when he set his alarm, he remembered looking at the clock and it saying it was 1.36. So he knew because it's like a 10 to 15 minute drive between houses, he figured it was probably about 120 or so when he dropped her off. And that is that ends up being really important to this whole story because when he when he dropped her off, he says that he turned off his motorcycle because Harley Davidson, I guess it was a Harley Davidson and it has a really loud exhaust. Yes. They're very loud. Yeah. And they do that because apparently they're they the reasoning behind that is that it's safer. People can hear them coming because people tend to not see motorcycles. There's you know, they're smaller and they're looking for cars or trucks and they miss the motorcycle. So the apparently the the thought is that if you make the make it really loud, people will hear you coming and they won't pull out in front of you or you know, pull over in front of you, not, you know, miss you and that kind of thing. Well, he says he turned off his motorcycle and coasted because he didn't want to wake the neighbors. So he says he watched her go into the house. He saw her silhouette inside the house. He knew she was in and then he went on home. So the thing about this is he testified at like a a preliminary hearing not at a trial, but at, at just sort of like his testimony, what he said happened at a preliminary hearing. He he testified that all of this stuff happened. This was the timeline. And he is on videotape giving all of this information and like an entire interview. Well, the thing is, he died in a motorcycle accident. Ironically. After. I know. Um, you know, if he had a habit of drinking and driving around on a motorcycle, I don't, who knows? But... Before the trial could even happen, he dies, but he had already testified. And so they 
used his, te- his testimony. It was read to the jury eventually. So it's kind of interesting if you think about it because they can't really cross-examine him. And so it's, I found it really odd that they would allow that testimony in and that evidence because it played a huge part in this whole thing. Yeah, I, and I don't know. I'm still on the fence to whether it helped her case or hurt her case. Yeah. Well, she called. So one thing that we do know is up to, up to this point, it's his story. This is his version of the story of, of what happened. But at 2.09, she definitely called 911 to say she just got home. Something's wrong with Ozzy. If you listen to the 911 call, the recording, it's so, she's so upset and so just screaming and just completely frantic that you, her voice is very distorted. You can't really understand what she's saying. But what what is reported that she had said was basically something's wrong. You know, there's blood everywhere. There's something wrong with him. She hung up on the 911 operator and then came, uh, called back. And then she went outside. So she's kind of all over the place. The police got there at 2.14. I mean, she called at 9 or 2.09 and the police got there at 2.14 and found her in the middle of the street. So five minutes, you know, from the time that she called. They testified that they didn't notice any injury. Uh, Kim, they couldn't tell that she was hurt. There wasn't any blood on her, on her or her clothing. And then when the police officers went into the house. They say that they, when they, they found Ozzy, he was sitting on the couch. They could tell he had some sort of wound to his head and they searched through the house, of course. I guess, you know, when paramedics get to a crime scene like that, they're not gonna just run in. They are gonna wait for police officers to go in with their weapons and their training and make sure that it's safe. Before, I, I think that's 100% reasonable. So the paramedics actually went in at 2.20 after the police was able to go through and, you know, say that it was clear and there wasn't anybody else there. And they determined that he was, in fact, dead. And, and what they said that they saw is that the blood that was, every, that was all around him had coagulated and that he was really cold and his body was really rigid. So they determined and the other investigators determined that he it's not like he just died right before they got there so that was one thing that was sort of um an important detail to think about how he was the fact that it's not like he just died right before you know within a few minutes just because of the way his body was so they of course they do their investigation, and they determined that he died from blunt force trauma to the head. They said there was like three, anywhere from three to eight blows. And whatever the weapon was, it was long. It was a long, slender object that was sort of like a stick, a bat, or a a golf club. And they said any healthy adult could have inflicted the injury. The coroner said that the injuries, that the injury that he had could have rendered him unconscious almost immediately. 
and probably resulted in him dying within two to 20 minutes of him being hit. And they also determined, the investigators determined that he was attacked where he was found on the couch. And also he didn't have any defensive wounds. So those are all factual, that's factual information. That's exactly, that's exactly when the, the call came in. That's exactly when the police got there. That's exactly when the paramedics were able to go in. And those are the things that the, the investigators found. So we know that those things are true. Right. And then there's some other kind of, I wouldn't, you wouldn't call them hearsay, but they, you talked about the murder weapon. They said it, it could have been a golf club, a bat, and he did play golf and he did have mm-hmm. um, clubs in the garage. Yeah, There was two baseball bats by the back door, but a friend of theirs had testified that they had seen recently, they had seen three baseball bats and I think a golf club by the back door. And so mm-hmm. there was a golf club and a baseball bat missing from their home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was, um, they did have a dog. And so that was one thing I saw that the dog, neighbors said that they never heard the dog bark. Like he never barked at all um, until the police got there. And so he started barking at the police investigators. So whoever, you know, and this is a neighbor, (laughs) bless you, that's made this assumption. But um, they were saying the neighbor, the dog must have known whoever was in there. Otherwise, he would have barked. Yeah, because he was barking like crazy at the police. And I don't... And everyone testified that if they didn't, if that dog didn't know you, it barked like crazy. Right, right. So... That's another piece. Also, she didn't have any blood on her at, mm-hmm. at all, at all, not one drop. And, but if she went in and she found the body and it said, you know, mm-hmm. that she like lifted him up. And if you've got blunt force trauma to the head, I mean, there's going to be blood everywhere. And so if she went over there and lifted him up, you she would have blood on her somewhere. Some, some sort of splatters, um, I think the article said maybe she would have stepped in it, you know, because it was kind of draining up and True. pulled up behind him. So, like, she should have stepped in it and then, you know, had footprints in the house. But if you walk in and you find that, you know, my first thing, if I walk in and find my husband like that, I'm not going to be thinking, oh, I don't need to get blood on me. So I look like, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be oh, yeah. in it doing, you know whatever I can. And so there was also some other things I think were very insignificant, but it said like she, she said she walked in the house and kicked off her shoes, but then her shoes were like facing the door. They weren't facing like if you walked in and just kicked off your shoes. Um, Mm. You know, I don't know how. That seems like an insignificant. That seems like an incident. Yeah. But at the same time, if you say, I, I walked I walked in and kicked off my shoes. How did they get turned around facing the other direction? It kind of doesn't make sense. So I, there's a lot of, I don't know. I'm on the fence. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and it's, I don't know. It's like these, some of this evidence, you could, you could almost make it go both ways. Because like the no, the no blood spatter on her, they, the the investigators said, and everyone who saw that crime scene said that 
it was there was blood everywhere. It was splattered all over the walls. It was all around him, and there was even almost an outline. We've we've talked about that before. This is something that happens mm-hmm. when someone is standing there hurting another person, you know, hitting them, and there's blood coming out of that person. It will create like an outline of a body on the wall and the, you'll see the blood all around that person because they're obviously standing there blocking it. So where did the blood go? It has to be on that person who's doing the hitting. Mm-hmm. So that didn't make any sense. She had to have taken off her clothes and just somehow gotten rid of them. Well, the thing is, what the police said and what it, what the prosecutor said is, well, she, Jeffrey Dills dropped her off at 120. She did not call 911 until 209. So what was she doing for 50 minutes? Basically 50 minutes. So they're they're saying that she would have had time to, you know, walk in already furious. Apparently there was a bottle of champagne that had been opened and it was in the garbage can, like the empty bottle. That particular bottle of champagne she was saving for her birthday celebration. And so the prosecution, you know, the prosecution, they always come up with some story, you know, which I always think is a terrible idea <laughs> because it, you're just giving the defense an opportunity to poke holes in it when you come up with these fictitious scenarios. But what they said is maybe she walked in, saw her champagne open and the bottle in the garbage and just went in to a rage. That was the last straw. Yeah. And he's laying, he's sitting over there on the couch watching television. And so she did what she did. And that's, that was their, their theory as to what happened. Then if that happened very quickly, which is just crazy to me to think about, even if in, in a 50 minute time frame, that she would have lost it enough to do that, hit him with a bat or golf club or whatever, have the presence of mind to then take off all of her clothes and get herself cleaned up and take the weapon and her clothes, she would have to leave the house because they never found her clothes or the the weapon. She would have had to leave the house and go somewhere to hide it somewhere and then get back and call 911 at 209. So, but the prosecutors are saying that she did have time that she 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 would have been able to do that. And that was their their story and their theory. So and it also said there was a strip mall like near her house. I'm kind of assuming yes. like maybe in walking distance and they yeah. they didn't search any of the dumpsters or anything. But why? I don't, I don't know. That's probably where the I, I don't know. I don't want to say how I feel, but I I feel I think I've formed an opinion. I mean, why would you not, as a police officer, as an investigator, not, I feel like we've done enough of these stories. That's like the first thing they do is they start checking all of the garbage cans and the dumpsters around for things. So I don't know how that happened. That was a major oversight there, but they did not uh, check the, the strip mall. There was a school, a YMCA. They didn't check any of the dumpsters. And they said it was a very short distance to her house. So in their mind, what they're saying is she could have gone to one of those places, deposited the murder weapon in her clothes, and then came back. 
and called 911. Also, there was evidence that Kim had been physically violent with Ozzy in the past. And with her ex-husband. Mm-hmm. Even the ex-husband. He didn't really have a dog in the hunt. You right. Know? It didn't matter to him. <laughs> right. So, yeah, there's some pretty, I mean pretty damning evidence against her as far as just not to say that this was proof that she did this, but just the fact that she kind of can get angry and go off, you know. So Ozzy's children told police that she punched Ozzy in the face and left him with a bloody nose one time. Um, And then her ex-husband testified that one time when they were arguing that she pushed him off his bicycle, and then he slapped her, and then she hit him in the head with cordless phone. (laughs) (laughs) Good grief. Then she went and got a butter knife. And threatened him with it. Threatened him with it. Oh, my goodness. Just psycho stuff, you Mm -hmm. know, just like toxic, awful drama. Oh, my goodness. And we haven't mentioned this, but it said that she was a nurse in the, she was an emergency room nurse. And I've never met an ER nurse that, is not like a gung-ho running towards a head trauma, personally. It said that she didn't, you know, she was drunk and she was upset and she didn't, so that's why she didn't Mm -hmm. try to help him do anything. But, you know, I mean, I'm friends with ER nurses and Mm -hmm. even when they're drunk, they want to go and help (laughs) and they might think that they could do things. They're but they can't. Um, <laughs> you think you're going to do these yeah. things, but you just can't. But they they still want to go and help, you know. I've never seen well, any of them, you know, shy away from tr- from helping, treating, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is. So she knew what to do if she walked in and, and saw him. And he was, it said like she, he was gurgling. And so... She thought he was sleeping. And I mean, as soon as you walk, as soon as she walked in that door and flicked on the lights, she could have saw that there was blood everywhere. So why did it take her 50 minutes to call the police? Right. I mean, that, that timeline does not add up for me at all. Yeah. And so the fact that she had no blood on her, yes, it could mean that how did she kill him if she didn't have any blood on her? Because where did the blood spatter go that was everywhere? But also, the thing is, if she walked in and saw her boyfriend laying there gurgling, obviously has been hit, and she's an emergency room nurse, she could not have gone over there and tried to administer any sort of first aid or she would have had blood on her. So it's like the... Lack of blood helps her in one sense, but then it hurts her in, the other, in, in another sense. Because like you said, she claimed that she grabbed him by the hand and tried to pull him up off the couch. So how did she do that and not get any blood on her at all? Not even on her feet. Right, and she, when there's blood everywhere. Yeah, she had taken off her shoes, she said, and she's walking around. There is blood all over the floor. How in the world she did not step in it. They said it would just have been impossible not to have stepped in it. Somehow, there was also glass in the floor because something had broken, I guess, in the floor in the kitchen. Just, just very inconsistent. Um, her story was just not really consistent. And it's, later on, she did testify at her trial that she had been dishonest about 
some some of the things she had been dishonest about her getting kind of violent and and that sort of thing. But I think what the defense is saying is, well, she may have been lying, and and also she did she did say she had been drinking. She was drunk, and she just her the the sheer panic that she was experiencing, the shock coupled with how much alcohol she had taken in. She just did not act like what she or a normal, you know, emergency room nurse would have normally done. So that was her explanation for that. And I think she tried to um, kind of deflect a little bit. And she said that either her ex-husband could have done that or yeah. the uh, Aussie's ex girlfriend. Well, and she was a piece of work too. His ex-girlfriend. <laughs> it said that she'd like vandalized their house and whatnot. So yeah. it it could have been. It could have been. Yeah, because the ex-girlfriend kind of did have a reputation. She had made, she had sent some really just borderline threatening, at least at the very least inappropriate texts to Kim about, because she, she wasn't happy about Kim being with Ozzy. And so she had gone and done some like putting glue in their keyholes and just silly things like that at the house. She was obvious. She, she threatened to slit their throats and, and all kinds of stuff. So this woman was kind of, and he actually, Ozzy had actually gotten a restraining order against her. So really it shocked me that she wasn't more of a suspect because all the stuff that's, I mean, someone that's threatening and you had to get a restraining order, all of a sudden you end up bludgeoned to death. But when they looked at her story, she was on a date like 30 miles away and her entire story of where she said she was during that time all was true. There, It was all um, corroborated. And so there was no way there really wasn't a way she could have done it herself anyway. Right. And the ex-husband had an alibi as well. Yeah. So both of them right away were just dismissed. They, you know, they didn't do it. They couldn't have done it. And so they look back at the person who, quote, found the body and found, you know, found him. They look at this, uh, the story of the friend who says he dropped her off at 120. She didn't call till 210, 209. So... To the prosecution, it's just a slam dunk, open and shut case. She obviously did it and then hid the evidence. And so she, her first trial was in February of 2005. It ended in a mistrial because nine of the 12 jurors found her to be not guilty and they could not reach an agreement. I mean, that says a lot to me. You have 12 people looking at all this evidence and nine of them, want to find her not guilty. That's, I mean, I was a little surprised after kind of seeing all this, you know? Yeah, I would I would have thought you were going to say it was the other way, that there was nine out of 12 yeah. that found her guilty. Um, and, you know, if, I think if Jeffrey, the friend, if he had not died, I'm wondering how this would have went. If he would have yeah. cooperated more uh, for her or against her, or would his story have changed? Yeah, yeah. Part, I don't know. I, part of me thinks that maybe they were in on this together. Because um, uh-huh. I thought it was weird that they got in, you know, her and the husband or boyfriend, Ozzy, they get in a fight and then she leaves with Jeffrey. 
Why does she right. leave her house with him and leave Ozzy at her? And then Ozzy stays there when it's Kim's house. And then somehow. You would think the Ozzy would leave. Yeah. Yeah, you would think. And then somehow coincidentally, he ends up dying. Yeah. 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 It does seem odd. They had a second trial later that same year. Do we know what kind um, of motorcycle wreck he had? Ooh, no. Well, the story that I read, it's it was not suspicious. Okay. It wasn't like, oh, someone deliberately, whatever it was. I want to say it was like another couple, like, I mean, basically what I was talking about earlier, like came didn't see him and came over on, uh, on gotcha. him. But yeah, I don't think that they at all suspected that it was like someone was trying to knock him off because they didn't want him to testify against her or anything like that. It just was complete circumstance. It just happened. It was just a coincidence. So her second trial was later on that same year, 2005 in December. And at that trial, the jury convicted her of second degree murder. And so the judge denied her motion for a new trial. And then they sent, that judge sentenced her to a term of 15 years to life. However, that judge, who was known to be what they called prosecutor friendly, what he said was, even though he had to give Kimberly a life sentence, he made the statement. He said to make it make a perfectly clear record in this matter. If this was a court trial, if the court would have heard the evidence in this case, I would have found the defendant not guilty. I would have found that the evidence was insufficient to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So the judge, who normally is a prosecution-friendly judge, sat there and listened to all this evidence. The jury finds her guilty he has to sentence her. He sentences her according to their findings because he's following, I guess, the recommendations. Like, well, they found he doesn't want to overturn their fine area. I guess he can't, you know, so he has to give her an appropriate sentence for what they say she's guilty of. And yet makes this statement basically saying, I wouldn't have found her guilty based on the evidence that was presented. Have you ever heard of anything like that happening before? No. Normally, the judge and the jury are on the same page. Yeah. And the judge will, will like come right out and say, boldly, give the sentence and yeah. just talk to the, yeah, as if, they're, as if they're guilty. So his opinion was that she should not have been found guilty. So then a federal appeals court judge made a comment also, that he had grave doubts about whether or not the state had convicted the right person. So if you have two judges that are coming out and kind of being vocal about a case like that, that's kind of unusual, you know? Yeah, usually they're set one way or the other. So there's, oh, yeah. this is, this case is very gray. For sure. And I, I feel like they, judges typically even if maybe they have a personal opinion, they usually try to kind of stay neutral because they don't want to come across as if they are falling down on one side or the other. So I've, I've just found that really fascinating. And it sort of lends, it lends to the credibility, I guess, of her maybe, maybe the fact that she shouldn't have been convicted. And the thing is, they, they're not saying she's not guilty. They're not saying she's innocent, but they're saying she shouldn't have been found guilty based on the evidence. Her clothes didn't have any blood right. on it and the defense. Yeah, they didn't do anything to show that there should have obviously been blood all over her clothes if she was standing there when he was 
hit because there was blood spatter everywhere. The person who did it should have had blood all over them. And she was obviously wearing the clothes that she was wearing that night because he described to a T what she was wearing when he dropped her off. And that was the clothes that she was wearing that the, po- that the police confiscated from her. So, and it was very specific, a biker kind of t-shirt with a little chain hanging from it. So it was not like she's going to have multiple of those that she could just switch up, like a plain t-shirt. Right. It was very specific in the details and Mm -hmm. she didn't have any blood on her shoes and Mm -mm. the way her shoes were kicked off at the door. Yes. And with the amount of blood that was there, she should have had like footprints or tracks or something. And they weren't able to find any of that or prove any of that. Yeah. And and I I think the judges... The judge, both of those judges, especially the one that over that was overseeing the trial, what his, his point is: How could the defense not have used this as an opportunity to say she did not have a drop of blood on her? How could she possibly have done this? She really should not have been convicted based on that. And that just basically says she couldn't have been there. That doesn't mean she wasn't involved somehow, right? But the prosecution was always going with the theory that she actually did it. Not that she pre-planned or put put this other person up to it, but that she walked in, they got in an argument, and she flew into a fit of rage and killed him. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't fit with the evidence. That's That narrative that they came out with does not fit at all with, the, with the, the evidence. But I think there's one theory, possibly, that Jeffrey really wanted Kim to be his girlfriend. And so he was keeping Kim at his house that night, you know, getting into the hot tub, doing whatever he could to keep her distracted and keep her there while he put someone else up, one of his biker buddies up to going over to Ozzy's house and breaking in. And so I think one of the theories is that he was going to have somebody try to scare him off, not kill him, but break in, Mm -hmm. beat him up and tell him he has to leave. Because Kim had already told Jeffrey that she really didn't want Ozzy there, but he wouldn't leave. She, he just refused to leave. Right. And so he, he that there's a, a pretty strong theory, really, that Jeffrey put someone up to doing this to go in, and beating him up. And then they went overboard mm-hmm. and ended up killing him. So then when Jeffrey finally goes and drops Kim off at the house, he knows what's happened. He knows because it's past the time that they were supposed to have gone there. And so he knows that she's about to walk into a nightmare. And But that would have been perfect a perfect motivation for him to lie to the police about mm-hmm. what time he dropped her off and to lie about anything, really, right. to make her look guilty because that gets the pressure off of him. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is very complicated, obviously. It's just, it's a very sad story, clearly. And Kimberly right now is out of prison, just waiting on the, the ruling to see what happens Everything's just sort of in the balance. And that's unfortunately the way our criminal justice system works. It can take a long time. There's really no such thing as swift justice. And she might be guilty. She might not. She may be completely innocent. And this whole thing is just a nightmare for her. And she just has to wait for it to play out. And she may end up having to go back to prison. So it's kind of... And that's just sad. Oh, it is. It's just awful. Uh, Any way you look at it, the whole thing is just not good. Well, that was our bad nurse story. And our good nurse story this week is a country music singer. I I know of one other country music singer that was a nurse, and that's Naomi Judd. I know she was a nurse. 
Really? A long time ago. Yes. I had no idea. Yeah, that's how she got hepatitis C. And oh. yeah, she'll she that's what she said that she from a needle stick. So that's kind of when I found this, I was like, oh, another country music singer that was a nurse. And this time it is someone from Canada. So singer Paul Brandt, who is a very popular country music artist in Canada, he used to be a nurse before he got famous. But not only is he it's kind of cool that he is a nurse uh, and also a country, you know, popular country music singer. But also, he has started this campaign called Hashtag Not in My City, and he's raised a lot of money for that by doing being involved in different charitable events. The Not in My City campaign brings awareness and fights sexual exploitation, and it focuses specifically on children and youth. It's nice to see somebody give back. Yeah. There are a lot of celebrities that give back, but this seems to be kind of his main focus is to mm-hmm. put on these charity events and do whatever he can to make the world a better place. Yeah, he just seems like a very down-to-earth kind of person. So I just thought that was neat. So, uh, you know, Paul Brandt, country music artist, helping children and youth. Well, I guess that wraps it up for another week of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Thank you, Allison, for coming back on to do another episode. And I want to remind you guys to go to goodnursebadnurse.com and please continue to send me more feedback. I've been getting lots of emails from everyone and we're still working on some of the stories that you guys have sent me. I've also gotten some, a few people have sent in some emails giving me some advice about things and, you know, just nicely, kindly reminding me about some things. And I want you to know I'm working on, one of those things is uh, Stacy sent me an email and was saying that she she loves the podcast and she was really sweet, but she just said that we sometimes aren't uh, as, maybe we don't take seriously enough the, the way that nurses kind of uh, don't take care of themselves. So like we laugh at ourselves for not taking lunches and make light of it and almost like it's a a rite of passage or almost like it's it's acceptable. And she said that, you know, and she was very nice about it, but she said that she, uh, she believes that we should be trying to put out there a message to nurses that you have to take care of yourself. It's not a good thing to go 12 hours without going to the bathroom and with, you know, with, without eating your lunch and things like that. And you've got to do what you have to do to take care of yourself. Ask for help. Ask your team leader, uh, ask your coworkers, do what you have to do, but you have to take care of yourself or you're not going to continue to be able to take care of other people. And I, I was so appreciated her sending me that email because it's true and it, we do laugh about it, but we shouldn't necessarily glamorize the, the idea as if it, it doesn't make you a better nurse to do that. It's Correct. just you, you're hurting yourself and it's not a good idea. And I definitely would never want to promote doing that for sure. You don't want to end up with a kidney stone in the, right. you know, in the emergency room. There's so many complications that can come from that. And if nothing and else, the, just burnout. The, right. That's a, what I was getting ready to say. Exactly that. And so I encourage staff to use the buddy system on mm-hmm. our floor. I know floors that use it religiously mm-hmm. and they write down when Allison lunch at twelve mm-hmm. fifteen, And so everybody knows when I went and who my buddy is. Mm-hmm. Not all floors are that way. Some people want to be bothered to ask questions because they, I guess they don't want to give a report on their patients or I don't know. They don't want to give up that control. I'm not sure. But the buddy system is one way 
to Mm -hmm. combat that. So you get a full uninterrupted lunch break, um, which you should. And as a manager, I completely agree that you should do that. You have to take breaks. Sometimes if I see somebody that's frazzled and just, you can just see that they're going downhill, we'll tell them to just go for a walk. Just take take a lap, take a couple laps, calm down, clear your head, you know, but we have to do those things. And I don't think any of us are good at that because I think we are all so busy helping other people, whether that's at work or in our home lives. You know, I mean, you're a mom, I'm a mom. Yeah. You know, we take our kids to the dentist, to the doctor, we take our dogs to the vet, but do we make those appointments for ourselves? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, are we the last person? <laughs> are we on, we're on the right. bottom of, of our list of priorities. Right. Yeah. Well, I want to try to encourage everyone to, for one thing, continue to send me those emails because I love to get that. I love getting that feedback from people. Even if it's negative, I want to hear it because it helps me to get better. It. I learn from these things all the time. It's... It's this is all we're all learning from each other. So if you will give me that feedback, it really will help me to be able to then share it with everyone else. If there's something that you hear me say that you disagree with, I want to hear it definitely. And uh, but just be nice because I'm sensitive. So <laughs> I get my feelings hurt. Well, thank you guys for listening again, and be sure and look me up on Instagram at Good Nurse Bad Nurse or Facebook at GMBN Podcast. And I also want to remind you guys, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.